Welcome to the Napkin to Nasdaq podcast. We have a very special guest with us today, actually our first guest of the podcast. We left off the last episode talking about how to make sure you don't set yourself up for failure at the very beginning of your startup, making sure you get to the idea stage. Dad, why don't you go ahead and introduce our guest today? All right, I'll do that. I'll start off by saying lawyers, love them or hate them. And I do both. I hate them a lot and I love them a lot. But if you're going napkin to NASDAQ, you can't do it without a lawyer. And this is a great lawyer who was our lawyer to the NASDAQ, Mr. Mark Graffagnini with Kara Stone. Mark, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, guys. I'm especially honored not just to be here, but to be the first guest. I'm ecstatic. So this is awesome. Thanks. I had to return the favor. Yeah, it's true. I, I will, yeah, I will say... Mark made an admission the other day that I didn't really realize. He was invited to the NASDAQ ceremony when we took Waiter Public and went to the NASDAQ bell ringing. And I thought he was there with us. And then he confessed the other day that he got there too late to even see us up on the big board in the NASDAQ big board in Times Square. So the funny thing is I saw it on there and I was pumped and I took pictures from the hotel right down the street of it. But I really wanted for the scrapbook, the picture of us underneath it, shaking hands. And just as we were walking up, it switched to a different thing. <laughs> oh, no. And we even went inside the building. We begged them to put it back on. They couldn't figure out how to put it back on. So it's just, it's just one of those funny things where you, know, you accomplish this great thing with a great group. And even then, the taste of victory is always very good. That's right. Yeah. So the moral of that story, for those of you listening to the podcast, is when your napkin exits on NASDAQ, don't be late. Don't like be Mark late. Yeah. That's right. Don't take your time. <laughs> that's right. Don't lose. It is New York. You got to be on time, right? Yeah, that's right. So, so let's get right into it. It's important. I say that jokingly at the beginning, lawyers love them or hate them, but uh, I think an entrepreneur's relationship with his lawyers and law firms, and not just his lawyers, it's always great to have lawyers on, your, on our own side, but the whole process of building a startup, there's a lot to think about from a legal standpoint. And it really starts off on day one, right? You decide you're going to do a startup. You want to be an entrepreneur, especially if it's a scalable startup. And Mark, in previous podcasts, we talked a little bit about the difference between a lifestyle business mm -hmm. and a scalable startup. And this podcast is all about scalable startups, not lifestyle businesses. And as a scalable startup, you really need to have good counsel from the very beginning. It starts with deciding on how to either incorporate or what type of entity you're going to be. So Mark, why don't you talk about that? What things should entrepreneurs consider when they make that decision? Yeah, it's a great place to start. And you're right. The funny thing about this stuff is when things are at the napkin phase, it's easy to sit there and be like, we don't need to worry about this stuff till later. And probably where people end up spending the most money is with that attitude, just getting started. Let's just get out there. Let's just do it. Let's worry about all this stuff later. And then they realize they have an issue. The first thing that people usually gra grapple with is what kind of entity do I want to be? And really, if you're going from napkin to NASDAQ, if you want to be a scalable tech CPG startup or something in one of those areas that can attract venture capital, there's really only one choice, to be totally honest. And that's a C corporation, and it's a Delaware C corporation. Now, there's all kinds of like factors that go into C versus C corps that a regular business owner might want to take into play. And by regular business owner, maybe like a person that has an accounting practice or a law practice or even like a retail shop or a restaurant. And the vast majority of those folks are going to do 
LLCs with pass-through taxation, but startup entities want to be a C-Corp from Delaware, number one, because they have great tax advantages at exit. So if the startup is a C-Corp and it exits after five years and it qualified otherwise for qualified small business stock, each founder or taxpayer that owns a part of that corporation gets to exclude $10 million in gain at exit. And yeah. So I want to get into the qualified small business stock in just a minute, but I want to back up for just a second to something you said just a minute ago. You said there's only one choice and it's a C-Corp, and I agree with that 100%. We talked a little bit about that at the end of the last podcast leading into this one. And I think most entrepreneurs that I speak to that are even that are building scalable startups, they start out with an LLC. And most of the time, the reason they start out with LLC is they get advice from their CPA, not yeah. from their lawyer. Or even if they get advice from their lawyer, they're, they're usually dealing with a law firm that maybe doesn't have securities experience and understands the reasons behind being a C-Corp as opposed to an LLC. And so what advice do you give those folks that are getting that information from either their CPA or their lawyers about being an LLC to convince them that the C-Corp is, the right, is the right structure? Yeah, it's a really good point. The world of startup companies is really the world of big companies from the beginning. And the lawyers and practitioners in this space, they're, we're setting companies up today, assuming they're going to be successful enough to go to NASDAQ. So we see all the time somebody's gotten started with as an LC with pass-through partnership flow taxation. And basically, we have to do probably 10 conversions or mergers a year just to get that C to a corporation. And it's a lot of paperwork. It adds a lot of money to your original financing. And this stuff... Because, because a lot of times startups are maybe started by younger people and the maybe it's just an idea, it doesn't seem so serious in the beginning. There's a lot of folks that don't take it that seriously in the beginning. And that's the <laughs> wrong, that's like the wrong move. It's just as easy to set it up with the corporate stuff from the get-go, but you can't use really, to your point, Uncle Jim Bob, the lawyer who does your regular LLCs for all kinds of operating companies. You, this is a different kind of animal that is vetted typically by corporate securities lawyers like you're talking about. And for, right. for many, for a lot of startups, they're typically going to raise money or raise capital from investors. And talk a little bit about the two classes of stock that you can do in a C-Corp that you can't do in an LLC or something along those lines. Because I think certainly from my experience, usually when you're raising capital, you're going to either do it with preferred stock or some other kind of an instrument and yeah. the C-Corp is really the only entity that you can do that with. Is that correct? You can. So the, what you're referring to, I think, is preferred stock and common stock. So when, right. you know, when multi-classes of stock, yeah, right? multiple classes of stock. And you can do that with an LLC tax as a partnership, but not with an S-Corp. So a lot of accounts, a lot of accounts of people say do an S-Corp because you get the benefit of lower self-employment tax. And there are tax benefits if you're a cash flow company and you're living off your cash flow, like a service provider, then an S-Corp might be good. But S-Corp is the wrong move for a tech startup or a fast-growing scale startup because you can only have one class of shareholder. So you can't have preferred stock for your investors. You can only have one kind of stock that's treated equally on the economics. You can do voting, non-voting, but you, the bottom line is do not do S-Corp for a startup company. You definitely want to do right. 
D Corp. If you start off as an LLC, another problem with it is a lot of people want to do their first round as a convertible note and a convertible note is debt. So when you go convert from an LLC to a corporation, all of a sudden there's tax things that you got to deal with. Like when you forgive tax at an LLC level, it's treated as income to the owners of the LLC. So that's also a big problem that we got to deal with. And we'll have to go through and loop in the accounts and you can do it. It just, it'd be better if you avoided it and you start off with a C Corp with convertible note. Yeah. Now it sounds expensive to, to, yeah, that, to be honest. That's, that's what I was right. getting ready to say. The other downside is in addition to the lack of tax benefits or the cost of the tax issues on that conversion is it's just more time to convert to mm -hmm. that you're paying the lawyers. Correct. I have a specific question for you, Mark, and it's, it's because one of the reasons why I thought it is important to discuss this was essentially because people come to me asking for advice as a founder. They're already in an LC. They've already done a couple of bad things, so to speak. So like they've given technical co-founders equity in the LC and then that they're no longer, there was no vesting associated with it. There was no, no out. So what is the first step if you are stuck in that situation yeah. and how do you protect yourself as the main equity holder in the LLC? What is, yeah. what do you do there? If you didn't do vesting in the beginning and just to remind everybody who might not remember vesting it, vesting is the right to, for the company to buy back somebody's stock if they leave. And usually it's for a penny or sometimes they just forfeit it if they leave or they're fired. And it's key to making sure everybody's incentivized for the long-term success. Otherwise, you have the free rider problem where somebody has a bunch of ownership and they don't have to do anything to keep it. So if, if you're in a situation like that, there's not a lot you can do uh, unless, I mean, you could look at kind of complicated reorganization type things to try to deal with it. In other words, merge it into some kind of other entity and resubject everybody as part of that deal. That's going to be hard because you're going to have to get people to sign off on the approach. So you have to go just try to get them to agree. And if you can't get them to agree, maybe, you know, an investor that comes on later can give you a little more leverage and you can't get funding unless everybody does it. But it, it, there's not, to your point, some mistakes, both in law and in life are really hard to undo. <laughs> and <that's laughs> one of those, if you don't have vesting set up from the beginning, it's really hard to go back to people and say, hey, let me get the right to get this back. Because in their mind, they already earned it. So asking for some, asking to take it away feels like it's taking it away. Whereas if everybody's going into the bargain together with vesting in place, it's already part of the relationship and they know that's part of the deal. So it's very hard to undo the lack of vesting. If, you, if you're trying to just rectify getting out of the LLC into a corporate form, you just, you have to talk to a lawyer who does enough of these on a cost-effective basis to, to get them done. By example, I've, I, as you guys know, maybe others, I have an investor hat I wear too with a, as a partner in a fund. And I've been, on, I've been on the side where I'm asking a company to convert and I've seen what some firms charge you. I've seen 50 to $100,000 bills for basic LLCs to convert to a corporation where there's tax issues and things. We do a much more effectively because we do so many and I know the issues, but if you, if, again, this is one of those things that you have to find somebody who does enough of these to quickly get through it. Otherwise you're going to spend a ton. So let's talk a little bit about that because I think that's important. A lot of the people who are going to watch this podcast are either 
entrepreneurs who have an idea, they want to start a company, they maybe not haven't gotten started yet. They're watching the podcast to figure out what to do, or maybe it's founders who just started a company. How do you, in the very beginning, typically you're funding it yourself in the beginning. I know when we started Waiter, that was the case for me. I was funding it myself and I didn't have a lot of money to fund it with. And how do I minimize the cost up front? And what do I look like, or what do I, what's that conversation that I have with the law firm to try to minimize that cost of forming a C corporation, issuing the original founder's stock and those types of things? What advice do you give startups for that? Do ask people in your network. I think founders are the best source of this information. I think accelerators, incubators, not as good to me because there's usually sponsorship money involved and where you get routed will depend on that. So not nothing against anybody that's part of the business model, but ask around other founders who've done it. You should look for a law firm that has ready to go flat rate packages and that, are, and that understand how all this works. If they don't have that, and you don't have a couple different levels you can choose from, that's probably an indicator that they're not doing this all that much. I think the top Silicon Valley firms, like the one I was at before and its competitors, we have different levels of packages to help with that. Because what I'm looking for first and foremost is somebody that A, knows that this is an investment you need to make and that it's going to help you in the long run. And B, are they the kind of founder that's going to have at least the tenacity to succeed. Like I, I want our name attached to, to, to strong founders with good companies and not people who are fly by night. We offer one tier that's basically just a regular, quick, cheap setup for one founder. Doesn't have a whole lot else in there. It's basic formation documents and stock issuance documents. We have one for multi-founders where we're doing a bunch of stock, but it doesn't have things like an option plan and all those things. And then we have the more, the bigger plan, which is everything. It's the corporate documents, the stock issuance documents, IP assignments, which are critical, and then your kind of incentive plan docs. And you should be able to pick from those. And the important thing is to get set up right. If you're not set up right, you can't get funded. And there's really just one way to do this for tech companies. There's not a hundred ways to do it. I, I got, if I could, Dad, something specific that I want to ask. I'll give you a chance to talk about your firm for a second. And I'm glad that you, I didn't know you had these packages because there was a moment there where you weren't necessarily taking on new clients, but I know you've been hiring and growing. So I'll give you a chance to talk about that and kind of the exciting stuff y'all have going on at Carestown. Yeah. Just usually the firm gets to a point every now and then where we like literally just cannot do more. So we, for, for a relatively small firm, we, we do about the size deals and probably a higher volume than say like a really busy, like full group within a corporate and securities department at a New York or California firm. So we do probably 50 to 60 angel and venture deals per year. We do five to 10 sizable exits from five to several hundred million dollars, just depends on the kind of cycle. And then we do general corporate work for most of the clients that are in that early to late stage. So there are times when, you know, we do turn down work and can't do everything, but I feel like we're pre- perpetually in a state of hiring and trying to find good folks. And before, before we f- kick this off, I was talking to your dad about how the job market seems to be a little bit better for hiring right now than it has been. I think, I think it's been really hard to hire for several years, but yeah, we're a very busy practice. It's really the same kind of work I did when I was at 
the biggest firm in Silicon Valley. Same, we're usually on the other side of a California or New York firm that focuses on this. So think Cooley, Gunderson, Detmer, or Oric, Winston, Sean was one that we were with the waiter years, multiple times that year, not just with waiter, but with some other groups. So it's same kind of work. We just, we're really selective. You will find lots of firms that have pro bono programs. Some of them know what they're doing on this stuff. Some of them are just trying to let a junior lawyer like learn on the job, which is why it's pro bono. And then you do have other firms that will like defer fees and they'll basically say, we'll do it for free. But as soon as you get financed, you have to pay us like 25 or 50,000 bucks. So it's not really, it's not really a deferral. And I would distinguish our approach from some of the big firms that do that on the coast in that they don't really care. They're going to push that work to down to somebody that maybe isn't a lawyer to document process, but our approach is more about getting in there with founders and helping vet the pitch decks and the ideas and the approach and the people. And we, we love making interest and taking invested interest and to be a relatively small firm in a big firm game, we've got to be right most of the time. And we are unfortunately. Yeah. And I'll point out that Kara Stone's based in New Orleans, but does work nationwide. Yeah. So you guys are, you got lawyers all over the place now, which is pretty cool. Okay, so Mark, now I've hired Carestone. I've created my entity. I'm a C-Corp. I found my co-founders. Carestone's helped me issue the stock to the co-founders. So everybody's got their equity now. We're beginning the process of fundraising. There are many different kinds of ways that we can go about fundraising. But talk about what are the most popular and why are those the most popular ways to raise money, especially seed money or what I'll call friends and family round in the very, very early stage? What kind of structure should I be looking at? Who should I be going to? Who can I legally go to? And what can I not do from a yeah. legal standpoint? Yeah, the, yeah, that's a great question. So anytime a company is raising money, it's basically doing what a security is offering. You're offering stock for sale to people. And the rule in America is that if you're selling stock to people, it's either you gotta be registered with the SEC, like what you do when you go public, or you have to have an exemption. So the first thing you can't and shouldn't do is announce on social media or the internet of any kind that you're raising money. Because as soon as you do it's that- It's a big no-no. It's a big no-no. Now, you used to get fined and go to jail for it. Nowadays, you might have an exemption. There are ways that companies can do crowdfundings and stuff. But the truth is those crowdfunding rounds are sometimes almost more complicated than IPOs, and they're not that cheap and easy. So same thing, you don't want to- you don't want to accidentally announce that you're raising money. So when you're on stage at a demo day, don't talk about your fundraise or don't mention to the article that's covering your business. Just keep it secret that you're raising money. Just talk about how great the business is. You're good to go. Other than that, in terms of structure, there's lots of options. A lot of companies will opt to sell equity and they do something called a series seed. And those are templatized. They're pretty easy. If you have investors, who want to know what percent am I going to own? Maybe that's what you use. On the other hand, if you want to jumpstart around and you have people who are really regular investors and they get angel and venture capital stuff, you might want to do what's called a safe or a convertible note. And that's a kind of instrument that basically gives an early investor a discount on people that put equity dollars in later. And that can be a good way to incentivize somebody to take that first plunge because you're giving them a little bit extra, you're avoiding a valuation 
thing at that point. So let's talk about a safe. So a safe is a simple agreement for future equity. Yeah. Is that a debt instrument to the company or is it an equity instrument? A convertible note is a debt instrument, correct? Is a safe a debt instrument or an equity instrument? So are you putting debt on the company if you do a safe or is it equity? Yeah, it's a convertible equity kind of thing. So it's treated like equity for various purposes, tax purposes, et cetera. And that's really how it's written. It's like a self-exercising option into your next round that somebody bought, if you think about it that way. It's not a debt. So, yeah. I got, so talk, wait, about the differences between, talk about the difference between a safe and a convertible note, because there are some similarities there. Yeah. But what's the differences? Okay. The first major difference is there's no maturity date on a safe. On a note, because it is a debt, it has a maturity date. The second major difference right off the top is that a convertible note has an interest rate and a safe doesn't. Although I've done a safe. There's always <laughs> exceptions to that rule. But yeah. yeah. There's an exception to every rule, Mark. Yeah, it's not supposed to have an interest rate. So those are the two really main differences. Other than that, they're really similar. And the last one is if your company doesn't repay the note on time, then technically the investors in the note can sue the company and demand payment just like you could if they, if you borrow money from them. Whereas a safe, if the company doesn't go anywhere, it just sits out there and nothing happens. They can't really And see. talk about the difference between the seniority of a safe and a convertible note as it relates to the equity holders. Yeah. Yeah, basically, I think they're relatively similar actually on that point. So I think say most safes say that if there is no round and there's a default or there's a, or not a default, if there's a dissolution or winding down of the company, then basically they're supposed to get paid out first versus the equity holders and then the equity holders. And then a note is the same thing, but the difference being the note holders are actually creditors. So they definitely get paid out first. I think there's some question probably in my mind of what actually happens at dissolution with that. I think the safe holders come first, but. I don't know that's what right. And that could be a negotiation I, too, right? That, that yeah, can yeah. always be negotiated. Logan, what'd you got? Yeah. So I was going to, cause you know, we're going through a safe right now. And one of the biggest hurdles we had to get over at the beginning, because we were raising to angels, also raising our first safe, having previously raised two priced rounds was the explanation of the advantages for the investor of a safe, the difference between a discount and a cap, the, most favorite nations clause. Can you talk a little bit about that and how you just give advice on that subject in particular? Cause yeah. it's all situational. Yeah. This is one of the factors that sometimes tips a lot of our folks in the direction of the price round actually is like if their investor base, if it's going to be more trouble to explain it, even though it's better for them a lot of times, then they'll just go, they just don't want to know all that. They just want to like, they like the idea, what percent are they buying? Here's the check. And I'm like, if that's who they are, then maybe we just go with the equity. Especially route. friends and family, right? It's simple. They understand it. They to understand the safe for friends and family is really difficult. And that's the funny part. That's saying no good deed goes unpunished or whatever. It's like you're giving them a better thing, but it seems like it's shiftier because if you don't do this all the time, that's what you probably think. You're like, why won't they just say what it is? I got to figure out all this math. But in, in reality, the best way to explain to them is to just focus on the discount. We're giving you, you're pre-buying the equity cheaper than what we're going to sell to the next person for. That's locked in. That's an easy concept. We're giving this to you at 20% discount. I have a little safe overview sheet 
that I've given to some people and I can give it to you. If it'll help. I'll take, Hey, I'll take it. But it, it <laughs> to me, it's like the safe is only a few pages long. That thing's at least like a page. It's as simple as one could make it, but it, that is the, that's the tipper to me in some of these markets. So if you're going to an angel network or people who routinely do this stuff, they'll get it. No questions asked by now. They know what it is. Mm -hmm. And you still hear some of them saying, we don't do safes because they think they're unsafe or whatever. <laughs> I, I don't know, but that tips the fate that tips the scale sometimes in favor of a price round. And we personally probably do more safes and convertible notes between two price rounds, as opposed to like the first round. I think, yeah. I think if we looked at our data, it'd be probably like 80 to 90% first rounds are equity and then 10 to 20% are safes. Yeah, and I would almost recommend that to most startup founders, right? If you're gonna do a friends and family round, make it simple, just do a price round at a valuation that you and your investors think is fair yeah. and make it easy for them instead of having right out of the gate to explain what a safe is. And yeah. Trust, trust and then, me, don't go that route. That, yeah. that, that route yeah. is, it, it is for someone who has raised money before, I will tell you, because it is not a, when they don't get it, it is, and it's your first time, it is more complicated to explain. But could you yeah. touch on the origins, your former yeah. Silicon Valley lawyer, talk yeah. about the origins of the safe and where it comes yeah. in to play and how long ago was this becoming, yeah. did this become a thing? I'm so glad you asked this because like I get to my age is finally helping me like a little bit here. When I first, I've been doing venture capital for a long time and I went through the last recession in Silicon Valley and did tons of recaps and notes. And the crazy thing is that we really were mostly using convertible notes. There weren't really safes at that time. We were mostly using convertible notes as bridge rounds. It was very rare to use as a first round, but the venture industry and the angel capital industry really grew a ton in the last recession because people were afraid of real estate and they were afraid of the stock market. And so they, and then Shark Tank and all these things were coming out. Startup world was becoming popular again. People had gotten over the dot-com crash. So they were like, I want to get in on this new stuff. And then because there were so many notes happening right there, because valuations were uncertain between rounds, somehow the concept made its way into different groups that were helping entrepreneurs, I think that this is the way you should just start now because you don't know what your valuation is. And I've been saying for a while, I don't think that's right. I think your first round, make it easy on yourself with people that don't know the investing world and use this as a bridge instrument. And also a lot of founders were doing these massive safe and convertible note rounds. And then by the time they did their A, they had to have a valuation that was like $30 million so they wouldn't sell 60% of the company. So it, it things got out of whack, I think. I, nowadays, then, so about, I don't know, 2015, 2016, probably, or whenever it was, Y Combinator, like probably the most famous incubator or accelerator in the world, created this document called a safe, which was more designed for these early stage companies than a note. And the idea was, let's get rid of the maturity date, let's get rid of the interest and make it more appealing as a startup like initial financing instrument. But again, what I remind people is that group is taking a pretty steep equity price from founders to go in. Like it's a 7%, used to be a 7% charge for you just to participate in that program. And they're investors at the end of the day. So it's still the safe, like a note is still designed to give your investor 
a discount on your next round and oftentimes a cap. And to me, when you have a cap in an instrument, you might as well set a price and just go for it. Yeah, let's explain what a cap is. So a cap is the maximum valuation that a safe will turn into equity or in a convertible note, the note will convert to equity. That's the maximum amount is your valuation cap. That's right. So you're setting a price. You're setting a will not exceed price. It's like when you get pulled over, like the cap can and will be used against you in your next valuation. <laughs> it's a cap is okay if you put it like at your dream series A valuation, because it's not going to impact you too much. But when you're starting to set it low, because you're like, I'm going to, it's no big deal. And then you see all these people convert. And you, I've, other investors, I've been in this spot as an investor. <clears throat> if you give people too good a cap, they get mad. Like they don't even want to invest sometimes. They're like, oh, dude, I'm coming yeah. in at this many and they're, they just invested like six months before and you're getting, it, it can cause you issues actually. Yeah. If you're going to well, say you're talking about it from the company perspective, right? That cap is not as great for the company because you're essentially setting right. a maximum value for that investment round. Now there are some advantages to the investor in 100%. the fact that if your valuation is not close to the cap when it converts, then the investors are converting at a discount to whatever that valuation is at that time. And that is precisely why Combinator created the safe was to protect the downside for the yeah. investor, which is not always that great for the company, right? It can be okay sometimes. If you blow out the cap, great, right? Great for the investor, but not so great for the company. So here's the other thing that changed. Before the last recession, caps in my in our practice were not that common. It, they started to only get common when the economy went down and it's like it is now. And things terms right now are hard for companies for sure. But I wasn't doing a lot of caps before the Great Recession. And then all of a sudden they started getting in there. And then it came the norm as startup world rose. And now they're pretty common, but for a lot of people, I do feel proud that a lot of our clients do not give caps. And some investors go, I just won't do that deal, but we do get that. We do negotiate for that. And the case we make in a bridge round setting, at least, is that you don't necessarily want to cap either investor because ultimately your returns are based on what the next valuation is. And if you give these companies too rough a cap, it might not help them get back to normal in their actual down round scenario. So a cap cuts both ways. There's no doubt about it. And it, but in the early round, you're right. It's hundred percent awesome for an investor. Why wouldn't you want that? Especially if you get it so, low. So Logan, before you ask the next, before you ask the next question, Logan, I want to just point out that Mark just made a point and there was a couple of points he made there. You notice he said the 2008 recession and the 2015 recession. And guess what, folks, in the next year or so, we're going to be in a recession, but there are a tremendous amount of startups that start in recessionary times that become greatly successful. So if you're thinking about starting a startup now in this next 12 to 18 months is going to be a perfect time to do this. I just wanted to point that out because you you talked about both of those events, both of those recessions leading to significant shifts in balance from investor favorable terms to company favorable terms. And I think that's going to happen again pretty soon. Yeah. Uh, Logan, I think you yeah. wanted to ask another question there. Yeah. So I wanted to 
one chime in and be like, it seems it came out of Silicon Valley to help mitigate investors risk. And it was definitely, a, it's an investor favorable document. And that's the pitch that the founders using a safe need to give their investors. That's why a safe can be good for raising in a time like this. But I like the kind of devil's advocate because it's even got me thinking, I'm like, huh, oh, all right, yeah, it's interesting. But backing up to the co-founder split and deciding on how much equity to give your co-founders, how do you issue the shares? How do you, because this is a mistake founders make a lot. Yeah. It's not easy to recover from misallocating the equity at the beginning. I've even seen a scenario in which a company I know issued all of the shares in the company, like all 10 million shares, like to the co-founders. And so how, what is the kind of thought process you go through with the founders to be like making sure each person gets, there may be handshake agreements in place, but when push comes to shove, what do you really do? I, I, it's awesome question. It's one I used to get a lot more for whatever reason I was thinking about the other day, because so I used to get this question how I have there's three of us, how do we split it up? And I don't, we have some data that I've been crunching. We just haven't finished it all. So I, I want to present to people, here's what multi-founder peoples have done. I don't know if that's the right thing. I'll try to correlate it with which ones have exited and stuff. But I'll say what shouldn't be done is any significant amount to someone who's, this was my idea, but y'all are going to run with it. This is to be avoided, 100%. And, that, and it really should follow the effort. The idea is just not the thing that gets everybody over to the finish line. This is a grueling, hard process. And the people carrying the torch are the ones that need the biggest equity stake. And your investors are going to require that when they invest. And to undo it, like you're saying, it sometimes causes irreparable harm. And it's like it's up there with no vesting, didn't own IP. If you give people too much of a free ride that aren't the, the working founders, it's a problem. I'll go so far as to say it's not just... It's not just the folks sitting in the room. How do we split up ourselves? I've seen recently like almost secret founders behind the scene that have almost as much as the CEO and they were part of, and I think the CEO may have parted with that thinking like, if I have this person on board, they're going to lend validation. But then after the series A and a note round, they're like, I don't have enough equity now. And I'm, Everybody, it's really, you need to take it up with the guy that took half your equity stake, and not, <laughs> not, not us as investors. I, and I think that's a fatal mistake. And I think it raises questions from your later investors. Who's really calling the shots? Who has the most skin in the game? So I would say, don't wait it toward the idea person. Always have vesting. And then you can only do so much to predict this. Everybody has to go in feeling like probably a couple points here or there are not the key thing. I think it's a mindset thing. If everybody's that much about moving the marbles around, your team is probably going to fall apart anyway, because it's just always people are going to feel like they're doing more than they get appreciated for. Yeah. And at the end of the day, if a founder has anywhere from, let's call it eight to 20% of a company, that's pretty good at exit. It's just rare that most of the founders, the main founders I know have had more than that by the time you exit. And so you just got to put this stuff in perspective and talk to guys like Chris, your dad here, because it's hard to have that big an exit, for example. And then it's just exceedingly rare to the point of a lightning strike where somebody has 
50% of a company that exits for hundreds of millions of dollars. It just doesn't happen much. Yeah. So let's take that a step further because I think you just brought up a good point. I hear this from a lot of founders and a lot of investors also, right? And that's a concern about dilution, right? Yeah. What you just said is a perfect example of that. And I'll give my own example. We raised from the beginning of Waiter as a, from an idea in the notebook or napkin idea to NASDAQ, we raised $26 million, right? Mm -hmm. And when we started, I had 80% ownership in the company. My co-founders had 20%. Now they were college students. I was a little bit older. I had a lot of experience before I was going to lead the execution effort of building this company. I gave them equity to, to come along and be a part of that. Right. Yeah. And it really depends on what contribution your co-founder is going to make and determining on how you split that equity. There's no hard rule about how it's done. It's right. a negotiation between you and your co-founders to figure it out. But once the equity is there, a lot of founders, even going into raising money and then a lot of investors start to be concerned about dilution. In my case, I had 80% of a pie that was worth zero in the mm -hmm. beginning, right? Because it was just an idea and a notebook uh, and a team of co-founders. And at the end, it was a $308 million exit. Yeah. And I had 20% ownership. But 20% of $308 million was a lot. So along the way, people will say, oh, you diluted yourself all the way down to 20%. Wow, why'd you do that? Let me say, 20% of $308 million is better than 80% of zero. And so talk a little bit about that. What advice do you give both founders and investors that are concerned about dilution? Because in my own opinion, your company cannot be successful without diluting your share count, but diluting your share count is not diluting your value. Talk that's exactly, that. that's the example I give them. And there was a saying back in the day, it was more explicit than this, but essentially equities like fertilizer, right? There's other words for fertilizer here, but you have to <laughs> spread it around for anything to grow and for you to have a good yield. And equity hoarders, in my experience, like the founders that have been obsessed to the point of no return over their first valuation where they're giving people like nominal sums because they say I'm everything without this company. They are almost always the founders that don't work. And we rarely ever even get to the engagement letter point with them because <laughs> I just know that that's just not how this can go. And yeah. I think it just, that's the thing. I think some founders get into the game where they're like, I'm going to own a crazy amount of a billion dollar company. And it's just, it just almost never happens. And you're, if you go into this like that, like you're really living in the movie, you're also like, those are also the personality types that are like into the like founder who struggled against everyone telling them they're wrong. As anybody who's really been through this knows, you've got to share with the people. Your success depends on them being successful. And it's not about struggling. It's about finding the path of least resistance sometimes and constantly adapting. So I use that analogy. The 100% of a pie worth nothing is not worth anything. It's 100% times zero is always zero, but a small percent of infinity is still infinity, right? Yeah. So yeah. it's just, it's a math problem here. And to your point, it really relates to everything we're talking about. The company is issuing stock and the stock value is very small. It's like fractions of a penny when you start. And by the time you list on NASDAQ, you need a minimum $10 share price. And it's supposed to go from there. So you got to look at this as a share value and a shareholder value thing that the percentage 
isn't quite as important. It's the total dollar return. And for any founder to make a billion dollars on your IPO day is almost unheard of. It's just not, you should go for it, sure, but just be more realistic. Owning 20% in the kind of exit waiter had on the bell ringing day was one thing, and then it went up even crazy higher, five times that after the IPO. Facebook, a lot of people don't remember, people were questioning whether or not it was going to be viable after its IPO, and it continued to go up. Now it's down again. So this is a world of ups and downs, and value is everything, not percentages. Right. I think that brings up a great point to discuss that I've thought about a little bit. And one of the things I'm really grateful for having both of you at the beginning of setting up Mallard Bay was because the co-found, the decision-making power that one of the founders has, obviously it's always got to be a give and take and you have to have someone else in the room that can challenge you, but someone has to make the decision. So do you see it as important for one individual at the beginning, call it who's going to be the CEO you're talking to me, I'm saying throw out all titles at the beginning and just you start there. But is that the right move or is the move equal ownership? I'm glad you asked this. I, I think other people may disagree with me, but I have a strong opinion here in that in a co-founder of two situation, it's really hard for us to work with a group where they propose us it's going to be equal. It, it, in every single experience I've had almost... Now, ownership can be equal, but decision-making... There has to be a firm tiebreaker because as lawyers who work for the company, we need to take direction from the company. And if there's a deadlock among the company decision holders, I can't even do my job. But beyond that kind of legal reason, just experience wise, every 50 50 we decide together forever thing has just failed. And I've gotten yeah. caught in the middle of it and I don't like it, so I won't do it. <laughs> and believe me, I've tried the co-CEO thing too, and it doesn't work either. That's really hard. In the last year or so or two years, I've seen a couple co-CEO situations just not work for different reasons, too. And it this is not like a pessimistic view of life or the world. It's just a realistic thing that companies like have to, they can't be mired in deadlock. That's what kills them. There has to be a decision. Yeah. And some are good and some are bad. Look, I, I had in my founding situation with Waiter, I had some young founders very smart people, super smart people, great founders of their founding their own companies now and that type of thing. But back then they were still in college, just out of college. And they saw me take the lead and, and it's unfortunate because everybody contributes so much to a founding situation. But when the press gets a hold of it, they want to know the founder's story, right? And they were asking me about my story. And I think it to some extent may have upset some of my co-founders that I was the one. And I always mentioned my co-founders in the story because I could have never done it without them. But then one of them one day finally said, yeah, okay, I think I'm starting to get it. Every band has a lead singer. Yeah, It's not just all harmonies. It's not everybody singing at one time in a band. There's a lead singer. Every football team has a quarterback. And startups are no different. Yeah. Somebody has to be the front man or woman, front woman, man, woman, whatever, but somebody has to be up front that takes the lead and everybody else can be leaders too. There's not just one leader in a company, especially as you scale, but somebody has got to be up front and somebody has to be ultimately the decision maker because there are tough, many tough decisions that a startup is going to have to make along their journey. Yeah. And we bought a company and Mark, you're very familiar with it because you were the lawyer on that deal called requested. And 
my good buddy, Sonny, was the founder of Requested. And he said something to me one day that I never really thought of as, as we were growing the business, but this was after we did the acquisition for them. And, and he had three additional co-founders or two additional co-founders. There was three of them and they were all equal and they tried to be equal in the decision-making. And so they, there was always, the decision had to be a consensus of three. Yeah. And he told me one day, he said, the difference between me and you, he said, is you listen to everybody else, you get input, you get information, and ultimately you make a decision. I tried to make it a consensus yeah. and it just was never, there was never a consensus. Someone was always objecting and then they would never make a decision because they didn't want to make a decision without full consensus. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And I think he's a great leader in his own right now because, and I didn't do that intent. I didn't know what I was doing when I did it. Like I was going through this same as him. This was just our yeah. first successful startup. We're going through it together. We're feeling our way through. We're learning it. We're learning from each other. But when he made that point, I was like, maybe it's my ego. Maybe it's just my passion for the business. Maybe it's just my will to succeed and not fail again because I had failed many times. But I didn't want indecision to be the cause of our failure. Yeah. If I made a bad decision, mm -hmm. I made a bad decision. But I made a decision because yeah. I think more than anything, what's important to startups is you have to make a decision. Good or bad, the decisions may go on with it. If it's a bad decision, you correct it as soon as possible. But if you never make the decision, then it just becomes stalemate throughout and you can never grow. Yeah, 100%. And it's different, but it changes and evolves over time, as you really know, because when you're in co-founders stage, like pre-board with investors, there's one group of decision makers. And then you take investor money and then, like it or not, they have rights and they have opinions and you have to adapt and that's the decision-making body. Although a strong CEO is always going to lead the direction and resolve the disagreements before the board meeting. If they fester, they're just going to keep coming like constantly, yeah. which, which is a problem. So we got 10 minutes uh, remaining or nine minutes remaining on this podcast. And you, you just brought up a good point that I want to touch on next. And that is the responsibility of, the founders, once you bring on investors, and also the responsibility of the board to the stakeholders, not just the investors. I mean, that yeah. that's let's talk about the order in which they they are beholden. But it's a big responsibility because once you bring on investors, your responsibility is no longer to yourself, your family, and your co-founders. It changes, doesn't it? Talk about yeah. that. Yeah, and I would, we need to do a follow-up on this topic because – Right now, the difference between successful startups, in my opinion, and the ones that are failing, especially in the tough time, are is 100% related to that understanding of responsibility. So when you're an officer, director of a corporation, you have a fiduciary duty to your shareholders, meaning all shareholders, not yourself, like you said, not just your co-founders, but to the investors. It's equally as important that you take care of their interests as, as it is your own. And then ultimately to any other people, like people who have exercise options, et cetera. And when things get tough, you really see who's going to succeed here and who's not. Because you tend to see founders who they make things, they make comments like, we're on team company and you're on team investor. And that's just any professional investor, especially, just doesn't really, they're looking out for their interests. But if they really have been part of this game long enough, then they know that they have to look out for the common just as much as themselves. 
And same thing with a founder. So it's a really, it's a really important responsibility. And although there's a lot been written about celebrating failure and all these things, I think real founders don't really operate that way. I think they take, they understand things are going to be on, beyond their control, but they believe if they fail, they've done everything they can to maximize value for the company. And they're not just looking right. how to spin it in a way that helps them later on. And those are the credible founders who people will back again and again. Whereas the ones who treat it like uh, it's all about me and my co-founders and you're either part of our little group or you're outside, you, those guys aren't going to be around next next time. Right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and you said something just now, Logan, I'll let you say something just a second after me. I'm, I know I'm, I'm very opinionated on these things, but you said something just now that I think is so important. They talk about celebrate your failures. Let me tell you what they mean by that, because you don't celebrate your failures. What you do is you learn from your failures and you celebrate your successes. And yeah. Logan, I know you're learning a lot about that as you guys have been more and more successful along the way, right? Yes. And to, to the point of the fiduciary responsibility, as you grow and start culture building and you start having board meetings and if your board is not making unanimous decisions from the beginning, I think, I don't know who said this to me, but it's just, it's very hard to recover from that. And then one thing I wanted to point out is a lot of founders, when they have board members that aren't big equity holders, and they should have an advisory board, which is different than a board member. Yeah. A board member should be someone who owns a significant stake of equity. And without that, they're not going to have the best interests of the company in mind. Um, and I think that's, you probably see it so much. Yeah. And there's one in mind, top of mind right now. Yeah. A bunch of folks that have a founder like stake in the company, but they've never put the time or the money in and their opinions are vastly more significant than what they should be. And they're really advisory board member in nature. And your board needs to reflect because it's such a true legal responsibility, but also an ethical one. You, your board needs to be reflective of the people with the most skin in the game, meaning they put the most money in, they put the most time in. Where boards become like where they just start to fail is where there's a bunch of people with opinions that have no real stake other than they were gratuitously given. Yeah. It's, if you're the guy that was just given stock and you don't have to do much for it, you didn't pay for it. You can have a lot of opinions of shoot for the moon that aren't related to survival. <laughs> when, yeah. when you put millions of dollars into something or you put your own personal time and money on the risk and your reputation, it's you have to look at it as a more prudent business owner. And, and that's yeah. why your board, can, it shouldn't be a glamour board. It, boards too shouldn't be echo chambers. These are places where you want different viewpoints and you want, you basically want to use the board to say, am I looking at this right or not? Now, if you're a great CEO, like either of you guys, you're going to talk to your board before the board meetings to know where they stand on things and convince yeah. them and let them know where you think others are. But ultimately, a board is an ideal lab. It's not an echo chamber. And yeah, and I think that's the point. That's the point, Logan, you're trying to make about getting unanimous, unanimous consent from your board, not the legal document, unanimous consent. If you know your board and if your board is aligned with your interest, meaning they're a shareholder, they're an investor, they're looking out for the equity holders of the company, then, you know, you can go into your board meetings or prepare going into your board meetings, 
to inform your board enough so that when you go into the meeting, everybody's in agreement on what the decision's going to be. Now, it won't always happen, but in the early days, it should always happen. If they're not in agreement, you should be working on those investors and those board members to convince them that your argument holds water and that they should come around to your way of thinking. And if they don't take it up for a vote, in my, in, in my experience, and I think that's how the best boards function the most. That means that you have had to do the work. You've had to take the time, do the research, provide the supporting information, give them the data to make your argument successfully so that they come around to your way of thinking. Because if you just go in there and try to ramrod something through your board because, oh, I got four votes and they only got two, you are just destined to failure right from the beginning. And I've experienced it in both ways. Yeah, 100%. And there's always ways to get everybody on board with something. And sometimes it's what you mentioned. So look, let's do it this way. And this is how we're going to judge success or failure. And if it doesn't work in the way we think by this time, we're going to try it your way. That's what a smart person yeah. would do. If you have a, but yeah, the it's very hard to recover from like fractured board votes and then get institutional investors later on to believe in what you're doing because they see, yeah. look, it ultimately all this stuff is imperfect. We're trying to get the legal documents always into a place where it's, it's fair to everyone. And the idea very much is to focus on mechanisms that lead to better decision makings, not, right. not lopsided winner take all. This is not a game of conquering your investors or the investors conquering the founders. This is we're in business together. We got to figure it out together. I'll just say one thing else about board. In my experience, you should never have a senior debt holder on the board. Convertible <laughs> note holders are set aside, but never put a debt holder on the board because his his responsibility as a debt holder is very different than the equity holders. Yeah. And so it's a conflict of interest, just plain and simple. It's a conflict yeah. of interest. Yeah. So that's yeah. my opinion. I, I, I definitely understand how that can come at play. And if I could just give one piece of advice to founders about making sure your board is together and Mark and I did go in depth on this on the podcast. I might have to cut some of that episode when we talked about it. Just listen to what they have to say. They have opinions. You don't have to argue with them. They just want to be heard. And if you have the right board member, that's all they want is they just want to be heard. Yeah. Yeah. Logan, I think we're out of time here. But this was great. Close it out. Was a great discussion with our good friend and our attorney, Mark Graffignini from Carastone. Mark, it was great having you on the Napkin and NASDAQ podcast. And hey, look, we got another company here that in about four four years or so, we might be prepping for NASDAQ in Mallard Bay. I know. Uh, Logan's okay. company. Look, I want to say uh, thank you all for everything over the years. Y'all are a pleasure to work with. In, in my mind, y'all really set the standard for how to look at all this stuff. And it's been really an honor to help both of you guys with your work. Thank you. And I appreciate it. Look, Mark and I haven't always seen eye to eye on every issue, guys. And you're not going to see eye to eye with your attorneys on everything. But the thing is, if you have a great attorney and you have a good company, you always figure out a way to get through those times. Mm -hmm. And uh, it is just priceless to have the right legal team as a part of the organization. Mark, it's been great working with you. And look, we got a lot more years ahead of us to work together. So, yeah, it's yeah. true. I couldn't agree. I couldn't agree more. You, your attorney has to have your back and that's what you get with this guy right here. Thanks, Mark, for joining. Thank you all.